Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Welcome to the latest episode of Full Comet. Terrorism has thankfully dropped from the list of many people's top concerns in recent years. Can we now breathe a sigh of relief? Or will terror attacks ramp up again after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the return to power of the Taliban? Is this a terror breeding ground just waiting to happen? There are few people in English language media better versed in these topics than Peter Bergen. He's the vice president of the think tank New America, a national security analyst at CNN, and the author of a number of books, including The Osama Bin Laden, I Know. Oh, how's that one for a headline? His new book just out now is the authoritative biography, The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, that includes some important information that you need to know. Peter Bergen joins us now. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, great to have you on. I, I got to get your thoughts on, of course, what happened just a couple weeks ago in Afghanistan, the fall of Afghanistan, at least in the way we saw it happen. I know that the withdrawal of U.S. forces was planned and agreed upon, but what did you think when you were watching it unfold live in the way it did? Well, you know, I mean, unfortunately, uh, it was a somewhat predictable disaster. I mean, as soon as President Biden said we were going to leave, we, the United States, then 3,500 American troops started withdrawing. Then 7,000 Allied troops, including NATO, uh, mostly NATO troops, also left, and 16,000 contractors, including 6,000 American contractors, some of whom were keeping the Afghan Air Force in the air, which provides medevac and also close air support to the Afghan army. All that sort of got pulled at the same time creating a crisis of confidence that was amplified by President Ghani fleeing the country. Um, and lots of people lay down their arms, not because they're, you know, weak or, um, but because Afghanistan has gone through multiple wars in the last 43 years and people want to kind of retain their heads on their shoulders and don't want to die um, in with a new regime that was sweeping into power. Will that, will it, is it a threat to, you know, U.S. interests, Canadian interests, Western interests, I think it is. Um, we saw in Canada attacks carried out by people inspired by ISIS when ISIS was at its height and declared its caliphate. And I think we'll see the same thing in Canada, the United States, and also in Europe. Canada and the United States are, of course, quite, uh, you know, we're protected by our distance from Afghanistan. It's hard to get there. Uh, but Europe isn't. And certainly we saw when Iraq was at when ISIS was at its height, that you know, a number of Europeans, 6,000 is the number, uh, uh, went to get training in Iraq and Syria from ISIS, and some of them came back and carried out attacks in Paris and Brussels and, and elsewhere. Um, and we can see that again with Afghanistan fairly easily. I mean, the, there are differences between the Taliban declaring its emirate and ISIS declaring its caliphate. But the differences are less important than the similarities and the jihadist movement's going to be given another huge breath of life by this development. So what do we need to know and, and understand in terms of the bigger context when the Taliban says, as some of their spokespeople have said, oh no, we're just going to be the government now and we're even going to look for standing in different uh, international bodies and we want to do diplomacy and so forth. We'll do trade. It'll be great. Oh, remember we ran the country before, you know, we're, we're just going to be a government here. I mean, in, in what sort of how much of a helping of grain of salt should be, uh, you know, afforded to those statements? I mean, I think a mountain of, of salt should be taken with that. Let's just look at the people they just appointed as the acting government. I think that acting government, by the way, will be the government. It's that the word acting in front of that is 
merely a sop to the uh, international community. The Minister of the Interior, Siraj Akhani, who's the architect of the Taliban's military victory, and he is described by the United Nations as a leader of Al-Qaeda on the Leadership Council. So, I mean, the group was supposed to separate Al-Qaeda from Al-Qaeda, and here they put um, as one of the most important cabinet posts somebody who the UN describes as a leader of Al-Qaeda. So, I mean, I think that sort of speaks for itself. Um, and we're going to see, I think, in coming weeks, you know, continued tightening of Taliban social policies. Uh, I saw just today that something like more than 150 independent Afghan media outlets have closed. Not all media outlets will, have, will close. The Taliban tolerated uh, Associated Press, Reuters, Al Jazeera, when they were in power the last time. They themselves have a very robust media presence that they did not have when they were in power the last time. Of course, they banned television when they were in power the last time. There was no internet in Afghanistan. There was no phone service when they were in power the last time, uh, they're going to adeptly use television and the internet for their own propaganda purposes. But in terms of their social project, I think it's going to be very similar to where, where we were before. Um, and they don't really, you know, sure, I mean, it's a case of sort of projecting our own um, kind of a mirror imaging on the Taliban to say, well, yeah, they want international recognition. Of course they do, but they can also live without it. When they were in power last time, only three countries recognized them. The UN had sanctions on them. The US had sanctions on them. And they survived fine. And today they are sitting on the poppy and opium trade, which is billions of dollars. And they're also sitting on 38 million Afghans who they can tax and extort at will. Uh, so I don't think money, which is not their main consideration anyway, is really a problem for them going forward, even if the international community and most countries don't recognize them. What does the Taliban want? Uh, they want to establish a, a, a regime that, uh, and a society that rules by their understanding of Sharia. And their understanding of Sharia is, you know, not a mainstream view. It, I mean, it, 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 it puts women in, um, women in the public sphere will be mostly gone, except in very specific jobs like female doctors can treat female patients because, of course, male doctors can't tra treat female patients. Women can teach girls in schools, but girls will no longer be able to go to school once they get to the age of puberty. Um, so you know, that's what they want. They want to, these are the values of rural Pashtuns, which is, you know, Pashtuns are uh, the largest ethnic minority, but not a majority in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, and they want to basically impose those rules on uh, and, uh, and their theocratic order on the population. And there's plenty of ethnic groups in Afghanistan, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazaras, who don't share their views. By the way, it's pretty striking to me, this cabinet that was meant, that was elect, uh, appointed by the Taliban includes, I think, only, it's entirely, almost entirely, 98% uh, from the Pashtun uh, group that the Taliban originates from. So there's no attempt at an inclusive government. There was a lot of discussion about an inclusive government. They didn't include anybody from the previous government. Um, so I, I, I think their, their choice of who's actually going to govern kind of tells you where they're going to go. Now, Peter, I know you've written before in your books about what happens when various embassies close, Western embassies closing in those countries, or CIA offices decide, okay, it's not safe for us, and they pull out from there and so forth. Are we going to have the eyes and ears on the ground uh, to get the appropriate intelligence and information about what's actually happening and involving in Taliban in Afghanistan? Well, look at this strike uh, that was supposedly an ISIS-K uh, target that various news organizations, the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, have all, I think, fairly, fairly convincingly demonstrated it wasn't an ISIS-K target. 
Um, and that was why we still had, you know, we were, the United States was still uh, present in the country. So the, that target killed, uh, uh, it seems like a, a contractor who was working occasionally with the United States and his family. And that was right now where, where we still have some sort of intelligence information that isn't super dated. Let's look out six months from now. Um, yes, the United States can gather, gather signals intelligence from people's phones and computers, and that's all useful. But in terms of targeting a particular person or, or persons, you still really need people on the ground to tell you that's the right person or this person really is an ISIS or, or they're not. And that capacity is completely gone, which reminds me of when we closed, the United States closed its embassy in Afghanistan in 1989, when we were completely blind to the rise of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda uh, as a result of that. And so, you know, pulling out of places like Afghanistan, you know, from a short-term sort of security point of view, of course, it's, it's easy to make that argument. But from a longer-term point of view, it's you don't really know what's going on. Peter, you were a part of a, of a team that went to uh, went to the Middle East to interview Osama bin Laden in the 1990s to sit down with him and, and get his thoughts on who are you, what are you doing? This was, of course, in advance of 9-11. Is that sort of stuff going to be possible now with other figures and questions about who are these people, what are they doing, what are they planning? Well, we went to Afghanistan in 97 to interview him, but um, you know, not right now, the groups like al-Qaeda don't really need to be, I mean, they're not not really looking for interviews they don't need right. one because at the time you know cnn was sort of the twitter of the, of the time in terms of a revolutionary new technology to some mm. degree um now you know if you want to make a statement you put it on twitter you don't need a uh i, I mean you lose something of course the world loses something from it not having live journalists interviewing directly these leaders of these jihadist groups but clearly there's a lot of now a lot of danger involved in that because right. these groups have kidnapped any number of uh, journalists or, or murdered them over the years. Wasn't it dangerous back then for you to do what you did or, or was it different then? I don't think it was because I mean, I sort of, they, they had invited us and, you know, they murdered Danny Pearl, the Wall Street journalist reporter, four years later. Uh, so that was really the first time these groups had uh, murdered a journalist. Um, and so the rules kind of changed in the interim and I didn't think that we were in danger. We weren't in danger. Uh, they invited us, you know, it was obviously it was Taliban control of Afghanistan. It wasn't, you know, visiting him and visiting him in, in Sweden, but it, you know, there was a, a, perhaps some risk, but I don't think there were any, I don't think they had, they had any intent of injuring us or doing, and they didn't. What was Bin Laden like when you met him? Yeah, he was very serious and kind of low key and didn't raise his voice. He spoke in a kind of monotone. He um, was very thin, very tall, six foot four. He carried himself like a cleric. He wasn't a table thumping revolutionary. He, um, you know, he he his words are full of anger against the United States, but he delivered it all in a very kind of poised, you know, kind of low. He, he didn't bang his fists on the table or kind of emote very much. <clears throat> and we were with him for just over an hour, and he left, and he went. Um, you know, disappeared into the night. He was, they were very concerned that, you know, I don't know, they had a lot of concerns about his personal security being around this, these three Westerners. 
You know, it's interesting. In the beginning of your book, you, of course, chart his younger years, his family very wealthy from construction and various other industries they were working in. And, and Osama bin Laden, I guess, had the ability to, to just access that wealth, play the game, and live a very... I mean, I guess his family were, were observant Muslims, but they certainly weren't extreme in the way that he was. And, and you think, oh, you know, this must be a case of the apple not falling far from the tree. But as you relate it, bin Laden was actually a, a bit of the black sheep in terms of he was the guy who said, no, we, we got to get super extreme here. Yeah, bin Laden, you know, he's got 54 siblings, none of whom went chose his path. So that's an interesting question why he did. Um, I don't... Um, you know, I lay, lay out in the book a kind of process of radicalization. His his mother was an Alawite, is an Alawite, which is a heretical form of Shiism. If you're an Orthodox Sunni, like the Bin Laden family was, so she was. I know she was only married to Bin Laden's father for two years before they divorced. Bin Laden was the only child of that union. His father died in a plane crash when he was ten. That seemed to have had a big effect on him, even though he barely knew his father. Um, and he turned to Islam, he memorized the Quran. By the time he's a teenager, he's a very religious teenager, praying twice, a, uh, fasting twice a week and praying an extra set of prayers at night. And, you know, I think that may have been one way of him trying to sort of become, you know, something more important than, than he was, in a sense. You know, the one, he became this very religious person. The Soviets invade Afghanistan. He, he goes to support the effort there. Uh, taking money to the Afghan groups fighting the Soviets. And then in 1987, he sets up his own base called Al-Qaeda in Arabic in Afghanistan, from which he fights the Soviets. He, uh, from that base, grew Al-Qaeda, the organization. And uh, two years later, U.S. troops go to Saudi Arabia to protect it from a possible invasion by Saddam Hussein. That turns him really, he's already anti-American. That really turns him against the United States. Uh, so, you know, all this was a sort of process of radicalization that took place over decades. Uh, none, none of it was inevitable. Uh, there were points where bin Laden could have gone, taken a different route, and, you know, people tried to persuade him not to set up al-Qaeda. Others, like Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who was killed by Saudi officials in Istanbul in 2018, told him in Sudan, you know, you do an interview with me and you can, renouncing violence, you probably can go back to the Saudi kingdom. He was then in exile in Sudan. Um, uh, that didn't happen. Um, and you know, by the time he gets to Afghanistan in 1996, bin Laden has dropped any pretenses that he's just a wealthy businessman in Sudan, and he starts issuing public statements calling for war against the United States. You know, it's, it's interesting when you detail the different disagreements he had with other sort of terrorists uh, in his league or, or involved in other groups, and, and they would sort of bicker over what actually the objectives should be and bin Laden was always really focused on we got to drive the u.s out we got to attack the u.s whereas others are saying well no we you know we've just got to overthrow this one particular regime in this one muslim country and so forth but he was sort of singularly no guys we, we really got to focus on the u.s angle yeah that was bin Laden's big sort of strategic innovation there were lots of jihadist groups in afghanistan who were interested in overthrowing their own government Sayman al-zawari runs the group now not very well he's an egyptian who wanted to overthrow the government of egypt Bin Laden really said, you know, let's focus on the United States. And it had the, it had the useful effect of uniting all these different groups from around the Muslim world that were interested in violent jihad around one common en enemy. And Bin Laden had a theory of the case that we, you know, attack the United States, the United States will pull out of the Middle East and these regimes that we don't like will fall. Of course, that didn't happen. The United States was attacked by Al-Qaeda, um, Bin Laden's men on 9-11. 
and, and instead of pulling out of the Middle East, got more involved in the Middle East than at any time in its history. Uh, so the whole thing backfired spectacularly for bin Laden, but it was his big idea. Um, and, uh, you know, I think bin Laden's one of the few people you can say really changed history. He certainly redirected the course of American foreign policy for two decades of the, fir of the first two decades of the 21st century, which also redirected uh, allies' foreign policy and changed the Middle East in all sorts of unexpected ways, but not in the ways that bin Laden hoped it would. There's certainly been a lot of debate about uh, the lead up to 9-11, what was known, what could have been done to prevent it. Obviously, a lot of conspiracy theories filling the void. Uh, you really detail uh, the people working for the CIA, the, the number of years, months they spent tracking bin Laden, what they did know, what they didn't know, and the warnings uh, that they gave to their higher-ops, and, and that made it uh, up to various, you know, to the Clinton administration and to the Bush administration. Uh, can you separate fact from fiction for us in terms of, you know, what exactly did they know uh, about 9-11? How could they or could they not have prevented it? Well, the CIA did a good job of what it's supposed to do, which is provide policymakers with strategic warning. During the spring and summer of 2001, there was a, a bunch of memos went to the Bush administration saying that bin Laden is planning something and this seems to be imminent. And the volume of these warnings was pretty large. Um, the problem was the Bush administration just didn't absorb any of this and was not concerned with these issues um, and was concerned with Iraq and the supposed threat posed by Saddam Hussein. Uh, the CIA made a mistake in the sense that it, it didn't alert the FBI to two Al-Qaeda members who were living in the United States who turned out to be two of the hijackers who crashed into the Pentagon and, on 9-11. And those two hijackers were known to be living in the United States um, in San Diego. And that, that fact was known to the CIA to about 50 or 60 officers who saw these cables. And so, you know, the ball was dropped and they never informed the FBI. Uh, so they were, from a tactical point of view, the CIA made a big mistake on that front. But from a st overall strategic point of view, they did a very good job of warning the Bush administration about the threat from bin Laden. It was simply ignored. But the sort of generalized threat, I mean, there was no, okay, this guy, this specific event on this day, there, there was not even a hint of that sort of specifics, correct? No, but intelligence estimates don't usually work that way. I mean, right. it, it's very rare that you have like sort of specific time and place for you know, the way that the CIA issues, they, they're called estimates, interestingly, you know, they, and they estimate with high levels of probability or medium or low levels of probability. They're not, it's not a crystal ball exercise where X is going to happen on Y day. It's more like this is, and this actually gets to the whole question of Afghanistan and today, um, you know, the CIA the intelligence community in the United States said that government could fall as soon as 30 to 90 days in Afghanistan after the U.S. withdrew. Right. Uh, you know, it turned out to be 11 days. Well, you know, the difference between 30 days and 11 days is not very big. So, right. I mean, the point is, is what is this, the, the CIA's job is to provide strategic warning to policymakers who then make the decision about what the policy is. And usually it's, um, you know, it's a general sense of like what what may happen in these circumstances. It's not a prediction of what will happen. What was the relationship between bin Laden, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban? Now, they certainly communicated. They certainly shielded him. But in what way was the Taliban involved in Al-Qaeda's machinations? Well, pre 9-11, the, you know, there were a, lot, a number of people in the Taliban who really disliked bin Laden, hoped that he would leave, you know, they were particularly focused, uh, this group was particularly in the foreign ministry of the Taliban, who was interested in international recognition. Um, 
and they you know they were kind of lobbying for bin laden to leave or leave of his own accord or get pushed out mullah omar the leader of the taliban at the time ultimately never made that call bin laden would always sort of use religious arguments with him to say that it was important that he continued to live in afghanistan and fight the you know, quote unquote infidels and and then over time, you know, the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda continued. And, and the documents that I used for the book, which were found in Abbottabad, show a warm and cordial relationship 10 years after 9-11. Bin Laden is writing letters to Mullah Omar. Uh, other leaders of the Tal Taliban are, are, are recipients of letters from Al-Qaeda leaders. Uh, Al-Qaeda leaders are communicating with the Pakistani Taliban, which is an element of the Taliban. They are communicating with the Haqqani network which is a key part of the Taliban. Uh, they're funding the Haqqani network, um, interestingly. And so, and then fast forward to today, the UN says that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban remain closely aligned. And uh, you, and of course, anybody listening to this can look up Siraj Haqqani, who's now the Minister of the Interior. And he he's described as being a leader of Al-Qaeda. And the Minister of the Interior in, 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 in Afghanistan is a bit like the head of Department of Homeland Security and the FBI rolled into one in the United States. So this is kind of arguably one of the most, it is one of the most important posts in the Afghan government. It's held by somebody who's described as a leader of Al-Qaeda. So I think that all sort of speaks for itself. Yeah, it really doesn't bode well for for any sort of future uh, future terror plots or what have you that, that want to sort of take root in Afghanistan aimed at the West or aimed at wherever. I, I mean, is it just going to be a situation in Afghanistan where the Taliban, you know, any sort of terror group that that shows up there and and sort of plants roots, as long as they're not directly contradicting the Taliban's goals, they'll they'll turn a blind eye to them, they'll shield them, they'll they'll let them do their thing? I think so. I mean, I, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be the case. And what are the groups that we have to worry about now? Because some are on the rise, some are on the decline. What are the ones you're really paying attention to right now? Well, there's an ISIS group in in Afghanistan called ISIS Khorasan, which has been at war with the Taliban. They're relatively small. There's Al-Qaeda, which I think was, was going to stage a renaissance. But there are other groups in Afghanistan. Some of them are not directed at the West. There's Lashkar Taiba, which is a group that is um, interested in attacking India. There's the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, which is interested in overthrowing the government of Uzbekistan. So there are a number of groups there. And I mean, they, they're they clearly going to enjoy, at a minimum, I think, tolerance from the, by the Taliban going forward. Um, and these groups, you know, they're never, they're never strong of themselves, but if they have a post-government that is favorable, they can regroup and train people. And, you know, we've seen this movie before. So I, I, that's what I anticipate happening in Afghanistan. Here in Canada, we had about 400 young people who either went abroad or attempted to go abroad uh, to Iraq or Syria to to heed the call from ISIS and to get involved in, in, in some way or another. And I know the numbers are varying in other countries and much higher in many other countries. That seems thankfully to have waned right now. But are we going to see a situation like that again, where, where people uh, view this region as as a place to go that, that you know, inspires the whatever you want to call it, the terror inclination in them? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes, because, I mean, the reason that those 400 Canadians uh, either traveled or attempted to travel to Iraq and Syria was because of the excitement around, in, around the declaration of the Caliphate, which is a geographical entity that, you know, controlled 8 million subjects and territory the size of Portugal. And that was a very inspiring um, thing for some, for some young people with these ideas. When that geographical Caliphate disappeared in 2017, 2018, 
the foreign fighter flow from Canada or America or Europe or other and, and Muslim countries around the Middle East just went down to zero because no one wants to join the losing team. So I think that we're going to see something similar with Afghanistan, maybe a little bit different. And also we're going to see another phenomenon, which is people not traveling, but radicalizing it at home in front of their computers and going out and doing things, particularly if these groups in Afghanistan start calling for homegrown terrorist attacks in the name of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Um, you know, you could see, no, you don't have to go to Afghanistan to carry out a terrorist attack. Obviously, you're going to get better trained if you do. But that's pretty difficult compared to just simply picking up some sort of weapon and pick your country and carry out a, an attack in the name of the great Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So my concern is that we'll also see that. Now, I know in my introduction, I said that things seem to be in a bit of a lull. People have let their guard down. They're less concerned about it. But is that fair and is that accurate? I mean, I was just thinking about the various lone wolf attacks that we've had in Canada and the United States and so forth. Uh, but I, I'm not entirely clear on what's going on in the Middle East and other parts of the world. I, I mean, are we in a lull right now? Well, I mean, we have been because ISIS was defeated. And I think that had a big, you know, the geographical defeat of the caliphate led to it no longer being a particularly inspirational group. We did, we still seen attacks in the name of ISIS. We saw one in New Zealand uh, just uh, what, a couple of weeks ago. We saw one in Manhattan in uh, Halloween 2017, uh, even which happened after um, you know, the geographical caliphate had largely disappeared. But you know, now we have this new caliphate or, or emirate, um, and I think it's going to have some similar kind of inspirational effect on those people who have these ideas. So you know, we're in a lull now. That can change over the next two years. Uh, now, I know here in Canada, and it happens in other countries as well, a lot of effort and energy has put into various institutes, uh, university uh, projects and so forth on de-radicalization, countering violent extremism, they call it, uh, trying to get to these people before they get radicalized or trying to stop them in the path and so forth. Uh, we hear a lot about, okay, these are people who are just sort of lost, they're looking for opportunity, that there's mental illness component involved and so forth. What's actually going on with these young people and what if we are uh, potentially going to have a surge in this and we're going to sort of go through that whole process again. I mean, what are the things that we need to keep in mind to to stop that from happening or to limit it? Well, the most effective intervention, I think, comes from former jihadists. I mean, there's Mubin Sheikh, who's a Canadian who's, uh, you know, done work in this area and others. Um, you know, the, I think the interventions that work, and of course, you don't often, you know, interventions that work aren't, it's, it's, like, it's like the tree that doesn't fall. Um, you know, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to measure, but um, I think interventions that do work can be, can be from clerics um, who, you know, can talk on a religious basis with people who have these ideas to say that they're not sanctioned by Islam. That's one approach. And, and, and I think an even more effective approach is former jihadists who went down this road, who've essentially, uh, you know, rejected this can also be helpful because that's more of a peer-to-peer -peer kind of um conversation uh but you know sometimes these interventions don't work there was a woman called shannon Connolly, who's an american citizen from De colorado she was 19 she tried to join isis the fbi talked to her four times and you know suggested if you really want to do something for syria don't join isis help out a syrian charity which was very good advice she ignored it and tried to get on a plane to fly to colorado to fly to syria and, and was you know arrested so the interventions 
can sometimes not work, but they're certainly worth doing and they don't really cost anything to do. Um, they're just a matter of finding the right interlocutor who can who can speak with some authority with whoever is radicalizing. A lot of people, when they saw the Taliban forces return just recently in Afghanistan, it's like, wow, what have we been doing for the past 20 years? And I know you write about the argument for the war in Iraq and you document, well, there really was not much of a connection between Saddam and, and bin Laden. And bin Laden actually thought of Saddam as this atheist apostate, so they weren't crazy about each other. Peter, have we just been treading water the past 20 years? I mean, what's going on? We saw ISIS surge, their attacks uh, here in the West, as we've been talking about. So they've certainly got a few notches in their scorecard there. What, what's Have we made progress? Where, where do we stand in all of this? Well, I mean, in Afghanistan, I think there has been some progress, which tends to be overlooked. I mean, look, hmm. I mean, so millions of Afghan women went to work and many millions of Afghan girls were educated and there's right. a very vibrant, independent press, pre-Taliban takeover. There's a high degree of, uh, almost everybody has a smartphone, so people are much more connected to the outside world. Uh, it's one of the youngest populations in the world, I think 70% are under the age of 25. Uh, so, you know, they, the society has certainly changed since the Taliban were in, were in charge, but the Taliban now can have all the weapons and, you know, the, you would be taking your life in your hands to kind of resist them at this point and the resistance crumbled pretty quickly uh now the taliban has you know it's armed with u.s army armored vehicles and u.s mine resistant vehicles and you know they've got some really good materiel that they've seized as a result of the collapse of the afghan army and uh so they're in you know very good shape militarily and i don't think there's much that you can do to dislodge them anytime soon but i, th I think they may they may make some mistakes, which may change the view of President Biden or his successor um, about what to do. They can engage in ethnic cleansing as they did when they were in power. They can kill an American or dual nationals. They can kill Western allies. Uh, they can carry out a, a terrorist attack in the West that's traced back to Afghanistan. Lots of these things would change the political calculus here. We see those famous juxtaposition of images from Iran pre-1979. Uh, women in jeans, long flowing hair, walking down the street. You know, people want to go to the disco or what have you, have a beer or two here and there. And then we see the photos right after and it's, you know, in the full burqa and all that and, and those very strict rules. In Afghanistan, that it's less clear to me what the kind of direction society would take if people were sort of completely free to choose it. You talked about it being, you know, a very tribal region, the Pashtuns and so forth. I mean, what is your sense of, of what the people of Afghanistan want? What's well, a multi-ethnic society, and you know there are people. Yeah, you know, Kabul in the nineteen seventies had women in you know short skirts and right. um, yeah, you know, but that you know in the in the provinces that was not the same at all. So you know I think well I mean what left to their own devices you know people in the cities would you know uh, dress you know modestly but they wouldn't be wearing a burqa or they certainly wouldn't be wearing a niqab. Um, and the other ethnic groups like the Hazaras, the Tajiks, and the Uzbeks mostly reject all that as well. In the south, in the Pashtun rural areas, you know, that's pretty routine to wear a burqa. So left to their own devices, they would look a lot like they did before the Taliban took over. Because, you know, for all its faults, the Afghan government was freely elected by the Afghan people. Um, it wasn't a police state. People did what they wanted, essentially. Uh, and in the in in rural areas, pasture areas that 
that they they adopted those kinds of social kind of customs and in other areas they didn't. Uh, Peter, one of your books looking at the war on terror from a number of years ago is called The Longest War. It's interestingly, you could call it the longest war even when you wrote about it a number of years ago because it's still ongoing right now. Is this a war that we stand a hope of winning? Yeah, I think win is the wrong verb. I mean, I think that we, the the win, defeat type things, we should talk, I think a more effective verb is manage. Right. You know, it's like a kind of semi-chronic condition, which you which you manage, um, and you manage it by, you know, there's a variety of tools that you can manage it with. You know, jihadist ideas, you're not going to get rid of every jihadist in the world, um, you know, but you can kind of manage the issue so that it's not a threat to your national security. And I think that we overall, the United States and its allies have done a pretty good job of doing that in the past 20 years. Um, but I, I fear that with the Taliban takeover, we're in for another cycle um, of, of violence that emanates from this country. Um, it, it's not existential, uh, but it is something. Right. So it's not existential. So we don't want to you know, crazy overreact to it and, oh, let's get another big prolonged ground game going or what have you. But we also don't want to downplay it, deny it, ignore it or what have you. What advice then would you give to policymakers on how to respond maturely to this evolving situation? Well, presidents as different as President Biden, President Trump, President Obama and President Bush have all all embraced, you know, some kind of elements of the same plan with just different degrees of, uh, of how they've approached it. Mm. So, you know, the drone strikes, special operations, special forces to advise and assist local forces, cyber warfare. You know, all these are pretty low cost in the grand scheme of things. Um, and they are, I think they're also politically sustainable because they don't involve a lot of American boots or allied boots on the ground. And I, unfortunately, you know, I think that President Biden made an unforced error with his decision on Afghanistan because the 3,500 American troops and the 7,000 NATO, mostly NATO troops that were also there, and the contractors, you know, that was enough to kind of keep a fragile status quo um, going. And, um, you know, now the Taliban's taken over. Uh, so I, you know, I mean, I think it, it, I think that the lesson of that is obvious, which is with a relatively small footprint and the right kind of policies, you can have a politically sustainable way to, to counter this. Um, but if you just kind of wash your hands of the situation, it tends to, you know, simply because we decide, we, the United States, decide that we're not going to be there. It doesn't mean that the war doesn't continue or the situation doesn't get worse. Um, and um, I, I think that's where we are today. Peter Bergen's latest book is The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, a really informative read. I highly recommend it. Peter, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.